This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's a great day for a podcast. Once again, here he is, John Oakley. There's this woke uh, ideology creep, I guess, that's infiltrating uh, so many of our institutions and, well, in our culture in general. But uh, I'm going to start this hour by discussing a piece that appeared uh, on John Kay's Substack, Deeply Problematic. He's the editor with Quillette, and uh, it's called Intersectionality's Cosmic Inquisitor. The, the whole point or purpose of this is to keep banging on the note that uh, intersectionality, while well, that's all part of this woke progressive speak, uh, and it's one of those ideological things, uh, we need to be very, very mindful of this. The, the creep is, I think, uh, corrosive to... Well, uh, not just our body politic, but uh, in general terms, uh, to those values that we actually hold dear and sacred. Now, he's written this piece. It's a rather lengthy one. I wanted to deconstruct in somewhat uh, simplistic terms if we can. So let's get John Kay in here. It's always a pleasure, John, editor with Quillette, to have you here on The Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Hi, how are you? Just a minor correction. This piece uh, I wrote for Quillette, so it appears on the Quillette website. Good enough. All right. Uh, so there you go. Based on uh, this story, as I said, it's a, a fairly in-depth study on an individual named Chanda Prescott Weinstein, uh, who's a particle physicist at the University of New Hampshire. Uh, but the message is really kind of a harrowing one. Uh, woke ideology having inserted itself into the STEM disciplines in the upper echelons of academia, you know, and that's a frightening prospect. So if you can, uh, maybe give it to us as simplistically as you can, how one activist that's her, uh, tried to kill the James Webb Space Telescope to begin with. Sure. And, uh, you know, I'm sure your listeners have heard lots of stories of uh, so-called woke ideology gone amok. Um, Generally, in my journalism, I sometimes like to look at little case studies because it just shows, if you look at a, a microcosm of it, it kind of shows how it expands And in this case, the case study is the rarefied field of astrophysics and astronomy. Uh, So this woman uh, is a University of New Hampshire scholar. Her name is Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, particle physicist. And um, she has kind of been the reigning social justice ideological enforcer in that academic milieu for the better part of a decade. I mean, I myself have sort of like encountered her online and she's, she's an unusually aggressive uh, and persistent um, social justice, uh, sort of like an inquisitor because she just like goes after a bewildering array of, of targets whom I cataloged in the piece, including the fan base of Taylor Swift, who, whom she compares to white supremacists. And, uh, one target she had was this uh, James Webb Space Telescope, which is it's, it's a sun orbiting telescope. Uh, it's been operational for the last couple of years, been delivering some just incredible uh, images, uh, including in one case, I think, uh, evidence of complex organic particles 
from, if I'm getting this right, 12 billion <laughs> light years away. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's an inc- incredible thing. And it was named after this guy, uh, James Webb, who was head of NASA in the 1960s, uh, like obviously a very important time in terms of space exploration, the first manned missions that the United States put up. Uh, so sort of a legendary figure in the history of NASA. And so, you know, he's he's dead now, but the, he has the posthumous honor of having his name on this incredible telescope, $10 billion telescope. And there was a campaign which began a few years ago to say, no, he was a homophobe. We need to rename the telescope after somebody else. And I mean, I guess, you know, in the parlance, it's a so-called cancel campaign, like trying to cancel this guy. And it was led in large part by this scientist named Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. And I, I opened the piece with a, with the story of that. Um, what's unusual here is that she completely got her facts wrong. She actually confused this guy, James Webb, with another figure from U.S. US government from the early Cold War period who really was a complete homophobe. Uh, she had incorrectly accused James Webb of being this, this horrible homophobe we have to cancel. It turns out she was confusing James Webb with another State Department, because Webb was at the State Department before NASA. Oh, the whole thing is very complicated. <laughs> the important thing is she kind of just screwed it up. But then even after she screwed it up, she says, well, you know, it, it was a homophobic era, and so we still have to take this guy's name off the telescope. <laughs> so she kind of kept going. Right. And not only did she keep going, she launched this like weird conspiratorial campaign against another black scientist. So Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, uh, as her name suggests, uh, Jewish, uh, but also uh, black. And uh, she, st- during the midst of this controversy over the James Webb Space Telescope, started lashing out at another, another black uh, astronomer, uh, sorry, astrophysicist. Uh, his name is Hakim uh, Olushehi. A uh, very distinguished guy, um, has worked for NASA, is now at Princeton and uh, George Mason University. Um, Well-known, uh, like just, he hosts a lot of science shows. Um, and he actually did his own independent research and said, you know, that this, the case against James Webb is nonsense. Uh, <laughs> she got really mad. And for the last couple of years has been making really unhinged online attacks against him. This is what drew my attention and made me realize that I should write this article because it's, it's, it's an article, but a very particular subculture. You know, not a lot of us spend time thinking about the world of astrophysics or astronomy and in particular, like social justice activism within that arcane field. But the more I researched it, the more it was just such an incredible case study of how like a single social justice activist can, I want to say take over because it's not like she she administers the entire field, but um, there are just you know hundreds of scientists who have been in fear of her because um, she's just so, so prolific on social media and accusing people of being racist and sexist and. But she has people listening to her. Well, that's the thing. They lend some credence to her that she has taken over, and as I say, you know this woke ideology and intersectionality that she represents has inserted itself into academia and this discipline. I mean, she's a particle physicist at New Hampshire, uh, but that whole, as you say, uh, it's a very arcane or esoteric uh, community, nuclear physicists and all the rest. But even at that level, at that echelon, uh, yeah. she's bringing all this woke ideology to bear. See, my question is whether or not this Chanda Prescott-Weinstein 
is just a neurotic, unstable crank, or do we take her ilk seriously? So, look, um, I haven't met her, and I'm not a psychiatrist, but for the sake of argument, even even if it is the case that she is a, a neurotic crank, the fact is every field has neurotic cranks. Like, you know, everyone listening to this, you know, you probably are in a field where, you know, you've met people, doesn't matter if you're a truck driver, doesn't matter if you're a teacher, police officer, like you probably know people in your field who are just really hard to get along with. What What I argue in the piece is that... In most of these fields, if you're antisocial, if you're vexatious, if people don't like you, if you make crazy accusations, eventually you're going to get fired or someone's going to sit down with you and have a talk and say, look, this, this isn't right. Like this, you know, you're, you're making this a toxic workplace. What the point I make in the piece is that academia is now one of the only fields where you can act in this completely antisocial and completely inappropriate manner and just accuse everyone of being racist and sexist. And I haven't even mentioned she also claims to be queer and says everyone's queer phobic and she claims to be disabled, even though no one has any idea what her disability is. Like, I mean, she just, everything under the sun, she believes is a form of discrimination against her. But what's unusual about the academic field now is because of, call it intersectionality, these, these doctrines of oppressed and, you know, oppressor and oppressed, she's rewarded for it. So, so when she complains instead of it just being her, you know, being antisocial and making crazy accusations and unproven accusations against people, including accusations of sexual harassment that have no basis uh, against people around her. Um, she's rewarded as a kind of social justice warrior and, and a whistleblower in a way that, like, it's hard to identify any other profession where a person, far from being rewarded for it, like, like they would either be fired or suspended or um, because... Of, of, of the really disruptive and unhinged things she says and the way she acts and the effect she's had on the people in her profession. And it's kind of weird because there's like two different conversations that go on about those people. When I interview other physicists, they, they despise her. Like they, they, they think she's completely toxic. She makes completely uh, false accusations against people as she's like disrupted the profession because of this. But on the surface on the, on the level of official communication, she's like, oh, yes, Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, you know, a real brave activist in the field of anti-racism and this and that. Uh, her university certainly uses that language to describe her. So it's this completely, like, uh, artificial world of praise that surrounds these people. But then you talk to their colleagues, and they're just completely sick of all this crap. Yeah, but so it makes you realize that sometimes you hear descriptions of these people in, like, the official communication channel. And it bears no relation to the way their colleagues actually think about them. She's like the paragon of victimology. Uh, you cite this in yeah. your piece. I mean, it was almost, I mean, somewhat comical that she was uh, suggesting, you know, uh, that she's a victim of this, that, the other. I mean, the list is endless. She calls herself indigenous. She's <laughs> a black Jewish woman who calls herself indigenous on the basis that her mother was indigenous to Africa. Yeah. Like, she's like, I read her book. I'm not joking. I read her book and it says, I'm an indigenous scientist. And, and it's like, what? <laughs> so uh, she calls, as I said, she calls herself bisexual. She calls herself um, pansexual. She calls herself agender. That's a gender identity where you have no gender whatsoever. <laughs> so like you're genderless. And she also claims she's trans. So she claims she has no gender, but she's also transgender, which is like <laughs> saying I have zero gender, but I'm trans. So I, it's negative zero. But people like, lend credence to this. Her, 
the people are lending credence well, every- to, and this is what victimology has turned into. It's a new pathology, isn't it? That's infiltrating so many of our institutions. This is academia. Uh, it's in boardrooms. It's in government and so on and so on. As long as you can embrace some kind of victimhood, uh, it gives you status. It confers a status upon you, doesn't it? Well, I think fear is, is more is, is more the word than status because, again, if you interview people, they don't. They actually don't have a particularly high opinion of her. They are afraid of her. It's a collective action problem where you have 99 people in the room, all of whom are thinking, "My God, what's up with this person?" But no one is. No one wants to say anything because if you say something, then you're the transphobe, you're the racist, you're the sexist. And and so I don't want to. It's t- sometimes I think conservatives overstate how much wokeism has taken over, say, the university, because the vast majority of academics I talk to. They're apolitical. They just want to do their thing. If they study like, you know, Malaysian sea slugs, all they want to do is be in their lab studying Malaysian sea slugs. They don't want to deal with all this political crap. The vast majority, that's how they think. However, all it takes is a tiny minority, and this woman is is a prime example, which is why I wrote the article, to, to kind of contaminate, ideologically contaminate the world of all these other people. And all of a sudden, you're not studying Malaysian sea slugs. You're just like going to endless... DEI training sessions because like one or two people in the organization are just obsessed with this crap. Um, so it's, I, I think it's worth studying the outliers who, who push this stuff on everybody else, because I think this happens in all kinds of organizations. It's happening at the TDSB. It's happening in Peel school system. It's happening at the elementary school level, all the way up to the most rarefied postgraduate programs in astrophysics as this article, I think demonstrates. Hang on to that. If I can hang on to you for a few minutes, I wanted to come back and follow up uh, on that point and a few others with John Kay, the editor of Colette. Very instructive. This is a piece uh, about woke ideology, again, having entered into the upper echelons of academia through one person, one person with uh, a claim to victimology on so many different levels. It's like multidimensional oppression, Jonathan calls it. This is a curiosity, John. I, I wanted to ask you about this. I was watching Opp- Oppenheimer the other day, and I thought to myself, you know, in this climate today, a guy like Werner von Braun would never have been able to work for NASA. Am I wrong? <laughs> I think that's an over. I think that's an overstatement. Um, I, I, what I would say is that someone that brilliant would probably get a job for NASA. I mean, it's not like you know, it's affirmative action is 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 the be all and end all. However. A lot of his time would be spent in DEI <laughs> seminars, learning, you know, correct pronoun usage and owning their white supremacy and learning how to decolonize space exploration. Like, you know, again, I, I think sometimes there is kind of like a conservative, conservative overreaction to some of this stuff. It, it's, it's not the case that like, you know, sometimes you hear, oh, you know, white people can't get jobs. Like, I, I don't think that's true. Like, you know, I'm a white guy. I, <laughs> I can't complain. What I do think, though, is that like a lot of these policies end up taking very smart, productive, dedicated people and loading down their schedules uh, and often their professional mandates with stuff that just has nothing to do with their jobs and all is, is kind of just more about social justice virtue signaling. And by the way, that also includes people who aren't white. Um, like one of the complaints, you know, because I'm active on social media, I get lots of people messaging me, including engineer. I used to be an engineer, so I hear from a lot of engineers. I hear from a lot of engineers who are like black or South Asian or East Asian, 
And they say, like, I, I came to Canada five or 10 years ago, and now people won't shut up with, like, telling me how much white supremacy I have, even though I'm not white. Like, it's, <laughs> it isn't just old white guys who are complaining about this stuff. There's a lot of people who are part of minority groups who are fed up with this. Um, I, I mean, that's why, like, you know, I, it's something I try and emphasize because because uh, sometimes I think stereotypes work on both sides, right? Where people say, oh, it's just like angry white guys who are angry about like, you know, younger, I don't know, non-white scientists coming up in the field. It's, it's, that's not the case at all. And a lot of the sources I work with in the article um, are, you know, like I, I quoted two prominent black scientists who, who have a lot of issues with some of this DEI stuff. This guy from Harvard, um, John Asher Johnson, uh, and Hakim Olushehi, who's, who's now at Princeton, and uh, George Mason, who we've been talking about. Like, these aren't Archie Bunker types. Like, these are, are sort of, you know, young black American scientists who, who have had enough of this stuff. And, um, you know, I, I think those are the people who are going to create change because I think, you know, because they are the kind of people who some of this ideology was supposed to, to help if even they are sick of it, I mean, I think that's where change starts, right? Well, you're seeing even Fortune 500 companies are now starting to uh, part company with their DEI uh, departments and so on and so forth. That's been a recent article in the business press. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with it. Have you seen that phenomenon? Yeah, I'm absolutely familiar with it. And, you know, it may surprise some people. I'm not against, like, diversity and inclusion training. I mean, I think... I. I I've been in some workplaces where it was necessary, but it necessary to correct individual behavior. Like if you bring in a, a diversity and inclusion consultant, because you know, you've got some guy who just like, he's a bully or, you know, he may, he says inappropriate things to women. Of course that person should be you know coached and if coaching doesn't work, fire him. I have no problem with that. The problem comes when it becomes a totalizing philosophy that you then are using to, proactively tell people, even before they exhibit problematic behavior, you know, your souls are infested with sexism and white supremacy. You are creatures of colonial genocide or what. Once it becomes a kind of like religious creed and the DEI trainer becomes a kind of priest who's preaching this doctrine to people, and you're not trying to correct behavior, you're, you're trying to instill them in an ideological belief system, that's when it goes off the rails. And I think that's why you've seen a lot of the corporations, they went heavy on this in late 2020, right? After the, the George Floyd murder. Mm -hmm. and, and it was well-intentioned because, you know, every society has racism. Every society, every organization probably has some racism. It's, it's you know, it's, these are problems that just are going to be with us forever in some vestigial form. The problem comes when you turn the, uh, the, the training programs meant to address that problem into something that just balkanizes the workplace and categorizes people as oppressor oppressed. And suddenly you're doing these exercises like that famous episode of the office where, you know, people are putting sticky notes on their head, you know, with their race and their sex. And, um, and, and you forget what the professional mandate of the operation is. You're, you become so consumed by this, you know, the social justice training that, you know, you start to alienate your employees because, most employees don't join an organization to become indoctrinated into a, a social justice cult. You know, you, you, they join because they love being an electrician or they like being a police officer or they like being a teacher. They, that's what they want to do with their time. And once the social justice stuff takes over from that uh, and you start dividing people according to identity, then morale plummets 
And that's what a lot of these Fortune 500 companies have discovered. It's not like they've suddenly all become racist or sexist or whatever. That They're looking at the bottom line. They're looking at employee retention. They're looking at employee morale. And if these programs actually decrease retention and morale for people from all groups, then, then why on earth would you keep them? DEI is supposed to be the remedy. It's not supposed to be the problem. Well, it's become the problem. But when you're mandated to proclaim your white privilege, there may be a problem there for sure. I got you. Uh, John, it's always very, very instructive talking to you. I look forward to doing it again real soon, but I appreciate it. And I require uh, or at least uh, recommend people read uh, this piece, Intersectionality's Cosmic Inquisitor, uh, on Quillette's website. John Kay, editor of Quillette. Appreciate your time as always. Thanks so much. Listen to The John Oakley Show live each weekday afternoon from 3 until 6. If you live in the Toronto area, just turn that AM dial to 640 and listen anywhere on Earth 24 hours a day by going to 640toronto.com. Follow on Twitter at AM640Oakley. You've been listening to A Curious Cast. New podcasts and shows are debuting all the time. So check back often to see what's new in the Curious Cast Library.